When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Dublin Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm your host, Nick Larson. On this episode, it's shotguns, shooting, gun fit, and more with Del Whitman. Welcome to the show for episode number 75. podcast is presented by onyx hunt creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters use the promo code pup20 that's pup20 that'll save you 20 percent on your subscription to onyx hunt this episode of the podcast is also brought to you by our friends at pine ridge grouse camp you haven't experienced grouse camp until you've experienced it at pine ridge rough grouse and woodcock hunting located in northern minnesota Find out more about them and book your trip today by visiting pineridgegrousecamp.com. 
and by Dogtra Callers. My dog and I are hitting the field this year with the Dogtra T&B Duel. That's a new collar for us. Can't wait to use it. I've been testing it all summer. We're going to put it to use this fall. I'm really looking forward to having that beeper, which I won't run all the time, but I've really come to like the locate feature so I can use it and locate my dog when I need it in that heavy cover. That's the Dogtra T&B Duel. Check out Dogtra's collars and all of their products by visiting dogtra.com. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gumleaf USA, high quality, handcrafted premium rubber boots. I'm going on the third season with my pair of Gumleaf Vikings. They are my hands down favorite boot to wear in the grouse woods. Honestly, can't remember the last time I wore anything but my Gumleaf boots in the grouse woods. Always dry, always comfortable, and so far they are absolutely standing the test of time. Find out more about them by visiting gumleafusa.com and use the promo code PUP10. That's PUP10 to save 10% from gumleafusa.com. And by Gordian Sons Outfitters, when your boots have the proper tread, you never notice how slippery it is. When your hunting jacket features the right liner, your body temperature won't enter your mind. And when your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement, you won't think twice about swinging through that quail. At Gordian Sons, they want you to focus solely on the hunt, not the performance of your gear. That's why the Gordy family has personally curated the best-in-class gear from around the globe for their store. Find out more about the gear, the guides, the expertise, all of it, by visiting GordianSons.com. And by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. One-piece rotomold design, frame steel door. I got my hands on my new Dakota 283 G3 Medium last week. So far, I'm really impressed with it. I pretty much knew what I was getting into. I was really looking forward to putting that g3 in my truck for the season it is there hartley likes it i think we found a winner head over to dakota283.com check out the new pricing structure check out the kennels and feel free to use the promo code pufi to get a free forever insert with the purchase of any g3 kennel dakota283.com all right this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is adam s adam shared a recent episode of the project upland podcast thank you adam project up and t-shirt coming your way real soon anybody listening could be next week's winner all you got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show leave us a rating leave us a review subscribe to the podcast share the podcast like adam did send us some feedback love to hear from our listeners nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com all right quick reminder this week it is public lands month and backcountry hunters and anglers have your back with public lands if you're not a member now is your chance to join head over to bha backcountryhunters.org you can sign up this month for 25 bucks that'll get you a membership and a free public land owner t-shirt check them out today all right we're jumping into the episode today this episode was recorded back in july when i took a trip over to lake and michigan to visit with del whitman owner head craftsman proprietor of dc whitman custom gunsmithing del was on the podcast over a year ago maybe back to episode 18 going off the top of my head i was there with a friend of mine hunting partner ted summer ted joins this episode as co-host this is his debut this is his big break 
We had a great time chatting with Dell. We spent a couple days with him hanging out in his shop. We both went through the gun fitting process. We talked a ton about shotguns, shooting, gun fit, all kinds of stuff. We got into some hunting stuff a little bit later. I hope you enjoy this episode with Dell Whitman. And if you love what Dell has to say and you want to hear more about it, he was recently interviewed on the Ron Bame Hunting Dog Podcast. They did a Q&A over there. He's been on Ron's podcast once or twice before, too. So there's some great stuff out there. If you like what Dell has to say, go check out the episodes he did on the Hunting po- Podcast. They are great as well. Let's jump right into it. Welcome to the Project Dublin Podcast of DC Whitman Custom Gunsmithing, Dell Whitman. I think we got it. Here we go. Project Upland Podcast. We're back in Michigan, on site, on location, Lake Ann. Mm-hmm. Lake Ann, Michigan. With our guest, the Upland Gunsmith, repeat guest of the podcast, Del Whitman. How you doing, man? Thanks Good. for joining us. Good. Wonderful. Glad to be here. Yeah. We had a, we had a fun day. We're going to talk about it a little bit. We shot some guns. We fit some guns. We had a good time, but what's been keeping you busy? We're we're coming up on bird season here. We're in July. You taking guns in every day? I know you must have a you got a long lead time. It's probably uh, probably getting pretty touch and go for getting guns back before bird season. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much for the most part officially not promising anything for bird season right now unless it's you know basic maintenance type stuff. But yeah, I'm I'm pretty busy. I've got a lot of stocking projects, which are fun. Um, some big restoration projects that are going. And then, you know, always doing the gun fittings, stock alterations, recoil pads. You know, I, I do that stuff all the time every week. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. You know, getting to walk through your shop actually yesterday and today was pretty cool, obviously, because you get to see all the guns there, everything that you've got going on. Organized chaos a little bit, right? You've oh, just got You've got guns in various stages of projects. I mean, it's, it's really – how do you manage that? How do you decide if a gun comes in tomorrow – the size and scope of that project, where does it, how does it fit into your prioritization? Well, you know, I, I stage a lot of stuff because I'm a one man shop. So, you know, you, people want to think it's a first in first out kind of situation. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it just, it just isn't because of that having to, to stage things. And, you know, typically what happens is I get a gun in and I'll talk to the client and then I, I try to get a look at it once it gets in the shop as soon as I can kind of do a feasibility study on it, get an estimate if necessary, and then it kind of goes into the grand scheme of things, you know, kind of goes into the hopper. And, you know, sometimes if if it's a project that is, you know, I've already got a couple, two or three of them that I'm going to start, like, say, barrel blacking or stock bending, I might do it that next day if it if it comes in and I've, I've got some other ones that I'm ready to do, or if it could, if it's the first one in, it may be a month before I get at it, and and again, it's not doesn't seem like the best system sometimes, but it's how it works in a one man shop like that when you're yeah. doing so many different things. So yeah, yeah, a lot of moving targets, moving projects. I should welcome into the the show my co-host today, <laughs> hunting buddy, actually uh, mentor during my first turkey hunt. You called me in my first turkey, Ted. Yeah. I figured I, I should do something for you, and I decided to bring you on the Project Up podcast. I do <laughs> oh, man. What a, what a thanks. <laughs> Introduce yourself to the audience. Um, Ted Summer is my name, I guess. I uh, live in north-central Wisconsin, northeastern Wisconsin, and grouse hunt as much as possible and have really gotten deep into the upland 
uh, grouse hunt, really specifically rough grouse hunting over the last, you know, seven or eight years, I would say, uh, hunted all my life. But um, in the last several years, just getting hooked up with social media reach and networking with like-minded folks has got me um, visiting with Nick and talking to him quite a bit over the last few years and just developed into a good friendship and just happened to work out to meet up to swing over on this trip. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I would guess that most listeners, maybe not most listeners, but if anybody recognizes you, they would probably recognize you from your Instagram account at Ted the Surveyor. You are a surveyor by trade. Right. And, right. Uh, and definitely, uh, definitely a bird hunter. <laughs> yeah. I thought about it afterwards. You know, you come up with those handles. I was thinking, oh, Instagram, this is neat. I should put something out there about surveying. There's probably not too many surveyors out there. And it quickly became consumed with grouse hunting photos. <laughs> yeah. It's as, it's a crea- as creative a name as Upland Gunsmith. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did get a little flack from uh, Adam Regeer. I remember that, uh, Modern Wild. He's like, well, should I put my name as Adam the photographer and it's like well sur- <laughs> surveying is kind of this unique profession that it grabs you you don't really choose it all of a sudden you're a surveyor for life you know so yeah. i feel like that's kind of my mo with with people that know me and then they obviously know i do a lot of upland hunting too yeah it's, that's a nice skill set i think just from obviously our conversations you have a your work brings you into mapping and you know land use and that definitely plays into plays into your bird hunting yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, air photo interpretation is probably one of the first skills I developed early on that led me into natural resources and and then surveying, and it, it lends itself perfectly to scouting grouse cover, and um, I'd be lost in the woods without going in the woods before looking at air photos, things like that. And, you know, that plays in well with your title sponsor, Onyx. I'm using that all the time, you know. Yep. Now it's just like candy to a guy who likes to look at air photos all the time so mm-hmm. so as as a guy that works in an industry that is very interested in land ownership land use do you i know the answer to this question but i'll have you explain it i guess do you use onyx in your professional trade i do yeah surprisingly um so the development of these online resources with what I call online GIS mapping. Uh, the base maps for Onyx is based on parcel mapping. So a lot of the counties across the country maintain some level of parcel mapping, which is exactly what I use when I'm doing research on survey projects, um, property boundary surveying, that is. So it was an easy transition, you know, um, and a dream, you know, if, I, if Onyx maps had existed when I was in my formative years, I was thirsty for air photos online once the internet became highly accessible yeah. to me like in high school uh, i can easily remember when terra server is the name of a i remember a, that a website once i discovered terra server um that was like the first satellite imagery that you could access free online. so that wasn't google earth that was terra server i remember right. that that was I, predating to, yeah to google. Well, i mean google may have something going on before then but sure yeah, I remember That's being what I interested used. in that too. Mm-hmm. I don't even know why, but this goes back to like high school, being interested in hunting some big, um, what I call remote country in northern Wisconsin, um, these semi-roadless areas, and having the desire to understand better where I was at. 
I remember contacting my, you know, I think I was a sophomore in high school, talking to my teacher saying, how can I get air photos of these areas hmm. and sending letters to like the county uh, land information offices and getting hard copy air photos uh, mailed to my home. Yeah. You know, I, that's at that age already, I wanted to understand the lay of the land better. And now you can get it on your phone. It's just like this progression. That's, I mean, it's awesome. Yeah. Dell, Onyx? I, I use Onyx quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's just really nice to know where you're at. And as we were kind of discussing before, you know, if you've got certain issues with people posting properties on public land that, that, you know, they aren't supposed to, that, that is kind of an issue around here. And it's been really nice to just be able to know right where you're at every time. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially for the remote hunts too. If you're on if you're on foreign territory you haven't been before, it's just it's it it's a really consoling feeling to know when you are or aren't on public property. Yeah. So Yep. Proud proud supporters of, of Onyx podcast is presented by them. We like talking about them. We're pretty shameless about that. But it's a it's a great tool. I mean I, I talk about it plenty on this podcast and I love it as a bird hunter. We're not bird hunting yet, guys. We were fitting guns today. We fit shotguns at Dell's shop, came in to do a gun fitting. So let's jump in right there. Dell, let's talk about gun fitting. The reason people would come to you for gun fitting, I'm imagining, could be varied. Ted and I are both very interested in improving our wing shooting and bird mm-hmm. hunting skills. Now, I'd be curious to get your opinion. If somebody comes to you, you, you kind of know that we were hunters if somebody comes to you and has different objectives, if their if their objective is to hit more targets or anything else, I mean, is that does that play into things at all for you or not really? I guess if if you're asking, you know, is is gun fit going to be different for different styles of shooting? Is that kind of what you're asking? I guess so. Or, yeah. 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 I mean, and you know, we kind of talked about this as far as during the fitting, um, an upland bird hunter or a grouse and woodcock hunter in specific, you know, their fit requirements are going to be a little bit different than say a classic, you know, trap shooter or skeet shooter or somebody shooting registered sporting clays birds. Sure. It's going to, going to kind of be a different fit. So, so yeah, I, there's a lot of variety in what people want out of the fitting, but typically it's, it revolves around people who want to shoot instinctively, shoot better, um, you know, have more confidence in their, in the way that they're shooting yeah. consistency in the way that they're shooting. And so Ted and I both brought a couple of guns with us, a couple of guns that we have, like probably most bird hunters listening to this, you already own a gun. And so you might have the question that Ted and I had is, does this gun fit me? How far, if it doesn't fit me, how far off is it? And if, if it doesn't fit me, what can I do about it? Right. So those are some of the questions that we wanted to have answered. And so take us from from kind of the start, you know, we walked through the process with you today, but from, from the start through the progression, what does that look like for somebody? So, you know, to start with, as, as I told you, one of the biggest criteria for having a, a good gun fitting session is, is having a consistent gun mount. So that's kind of the, the, you know, the cornerstone, because if there isn't a consistent gun mount and some proficiency in mounting the gun, then you know, the gun fitting won't go well and it, you know, the data you're getting out of the gun fitting won't be consistent and it won't be real applicable. So when we start, I'll take the, you know, exactly, you know, just walking through what we did with, yep. with you and Ted, I, I took you, you had a gun that you thought you shot relatively well. 
So in the shop, we did what I would refer to as like a dry gun fit assessment. So you're, you know, we're making sure the gun is empty and then I'm assessing your length of pull. That's kind of the, the, the start is assessing length of pull and getting that in, in the ballpark. From there, I'll... What are, what are the things that when you're visually looking at me when I'm mounting the gun, what are you looking at to assess the length of pull? Mainly, we're... Two things. What position your arm is in. So we want to have kind of a neutral 90 degree or a little better angle in your in your arm. It shouldn't be constricted back, you know, so closing your, your arm. It should not be extended forward to the point where you're reaching. Uh, it should feel very comfortable and fluid. And then also uh, head position. We want to make sure that your, your cheek is hitting the stock at, you know, kind of a, a midway point on the comb or sometimes uh, three inches back from the comb nose. And, and of course, that can vary depending on where the comb nose is in relation to the breech face. So we always have to check that too. Mm-hmm. But so yeah, so once, once we get length of pull kind of roughly as, uh, assessed, then we'll do the, you know, have you make sure that the gun is unloaded and then point at my right eye and I'll sight down the the uh, sighting plane of the gun and kind of see where you're where the the iris of your eye is and that will roughly tell me you know is it high is is, is are, are you looking high over the rib are you below can I not see your your iris is it right or is it left and from there I can kind of make some initial judgments and then I'll take the trigun, which is, if you want me to explain that, it's a, it's a. Yeah, let's dive into that because you you wrote about it. There was an article in Shooting Sportsman magazine, but certainly probably not everybody read that. I mean, maybe as best we can, let's try to describe what a trigun might have been, and now this new take on it that that you've developed. Yeah. So the the basic concept of a trigun is it's a fully articulated stock, so it can it can have a wide variety of measurements. It's it, it can have the length of pull be widely adjustable. The drop at comb is adjustable. And typically the comb is hinged towards the rear so you can affect comb angle as well as all the drops and all the cast measurements. And on a gun like mine, and, and we'll get into the differences between the one I have and the ones that were classically used, is you can rotate it too so you can affect for toe in and toe out and a few things like that. But you know, some of this was in the Shooting Sportsman article, but most tri-guns are somehow facilitated around a, a double universal joint type mechanism where there, it's basically like two hinges, one horizontally, one vertically. And then there's some type of clamping mechanism, be it, you know, opposing set screws or some type of, uh, like worm drive type lead screw that makes, you know, the stock go, uh, right, you know, right to left for cast and then up and down for drop. Yep. And the, the one, you know, after having had several of them and worked on, you know, having worked on a lot of them, that mechanism is very, I, I would say, kind of flimsy, for lack of a better term. They're hard to maintain. Um, they don't, they tend to get loose over time. Um, it's a very long mechanism, too. So it ends up being quite far back in the stock, which which can affect the way, you know, the dimensions are perceived. And I I came up with the idea to use a ball and socket joint, so it's a very compact joint. It's it's extremely strong, and you can also rotate the stock, you know, radially, which is which is very handy. And you can also make, as Nick and Ted saw, I I can put my measuring stick or you know measuring device on the stock, loosen the screws, and basically dynamically just move it around yep. and, and get to where I want. And that's very helpful when you're kind of doing some fine tuning as far as the comb angle where we, we kind of roughly know where your drop at face is, which is the most, you know, 
quote unquote the more the most important measurement. And we, um, you know, if we want to see a little bit more of the 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 butt be in your shoulder pocket, I can lower it at the heel and then raise that hinged comb up and and maintain the at face dimension while lowering the heel. Yeah. That's that's just you can do the opposite of that too if you have to. Yeah. But um, that's, can you? I guess Dell, just dive into that a little bit, though, where you talk about the point on face. So I know you were looking at that closely when I was watching you fit Nick. Is yeah, that where the cheek, you know, it, it where is. your cheek meets the gun? It's where the cheek meets the gun. And if you think about it in, in terms of like, and, and I explained it to these guys when we were doing it, it's like sighting in a rifle. So, you know, on a rifle, if you if you want to make where the gun is shooting go left, you move the rear sight to the left. If you want to make it shoot, you know, to the right, you move it to the right, up, down, the same thing. And you just have to think of it like your physical eyeball is the rear sight. So if you move, you know, if you give the stock more cast, which is, you know, technically, you know, for a right-handed shooter, that's, you're moving your eye to the right, the pattern will move to the right. If it's, if it's shooting low and you physically, you know, move your eye up by moving your head up on the stock, then the pattern comes up. That's kind of the basis of gun fitting. And that back to what that at face measurement is, that is, that is that midway point between the nose and the heel where your eye, you know, where your cheek hits the stock, which is the, the closest measurement to your eye. How does that relate to, because when you see guns for sale, this is what I was trying to, trying to translate, you know, after looking through your shop and, and having perused a lot of used guns for sale and always kind of wondering how does that, knowing that I'm going to come out of your fitting with measurements now that I can apply to looking at guns for sale. So what you see all the time is drop at heel, mm-hmm. drop at comb, length of pull, mm-hmm. right? I mean, those are yeah. the three standards. So is the is the the point where the face contacts the the stock that's as close as possible to the drop at comb? Is that what people it, are? It, looking no, for? it's not really, and, and it's unfortunate that 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 you know a lot of the dealers and the people who are selling guns don't give you all three of those dimensions. But you know, you can kind of do an equivocation where you know if you're raising one dimension at the if it's lower at the heel and higher at the nose than you need, then you can kind of work backwards from that and say, well, if it's a little lower at the nose and higher at the heel, you can kind of figure out where that midway point is. A lot of times when I, clients will give me a set of dimensions like that, I'll just draw, you know, basically make a diagram on a sheet of paper, similar to what I did with figuring out that mm-hmm. that true cast. Yeah, it, it is tough and it is unfortunate that more dealers and salespeople don't put all of those dimensions on there because it's helpful. It would be, you know, a lot more helpful if they did. Yeah. And that's a lot of what I do when I do inspections for people. You know, you know, repeat clients I have that I do inspections for. I've got their stock fitting dimensions on file, and the gun comes in. I do my mechanical inspection, and the very next thing I do is, you know, measure everything out and see exactly where it is compared to their dimensions. So back up just a sec. So like that's a that's a separate. I mean, we're talking about gun fitting, but yep. that's a service you provide if you're buying a gun. You're unsure of. The quality oh, of it. Abs- you want absolutely, to yeah. We can yep. get you can get the gun shipped to Dell, and then maybe Nick. Yeah, I had I had the gun that I bought over the winter, the the Connecticut RBL shipped to you, and one of the reasons I wanted to do this because I kind of knew that you did that, and you. I wish every gun that we looked at on Guns International had you know a little checklist there from Dell, you know, that had it's like the diagnostics of the gun. You know, mm-hmm. you've got you've got chokes. You've got the dimensions, length of pull, the drops, and the weight. You know the weight. Yep. I want to know the weight of the gun. I mean, it's 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 a really all the all the data about the characteristics about a gun that you'd be interested in as 
you know, a potential shotgun buyer. That's the stuff that you're looking at and you're documenting it. So Yeah, and, and, and as well as the dimensional stuff too, you know, on that worksheet, you know, the inspection worksheet I have, you're looking at choke constriction, you're looking at barrel wall thickness, you're looking yep. at, you know, rib and you know, rib integrity, um, what are the trigger pulls? Are the trigger pulls crisp? Do the ejectors work properly? You know, the whole thing, is it an automatic safety? Is it functioning properly? And I, I can't, if, if there's one thing I have to recommend to everybody and, and is just, you know, if you're, if you're buying a gun, be it a $500 gun or a, you know, $100,000 gun, pay somebody who's qualified to do that inspection because it will, it can, it's well worth it and it can save some real heartbreak in the long run. Yeah. And I would just say that going through the process now and the conversations that we've all been having today, especially you two guys, Dell and Ted, you both being in the service business, you know, you're talking about, we were kind of joking about, you know, the price that you charge and stuff, but what you pay somebody that provides a service is you're buying their 10, 15, 20, 25 years of experience. So that, that dollar transaction for you to do the inspection, that's, you know, that's the service that you're providing. But the conversation that I had with you about the RBL after was even more valuable, you know, just mm-hmm. talking about the gun, things that you saw in it. And that gun was in really good shape. There wasn't a whole lot to, to hem and haw about, but if you're buying a gun and you don't know anything about it, and you want to know a little bit more about it. I mean, absolutely. That's a, it's a great way to, to learn about the gun and then, then have it documented. You know, I've got that sheet of paper in my gun safe. So I don't know if I'm like everybody else, but I oftentimes forget like, Oh, what's that gun choked again? You know, mm-hmm. what is it exactly choked? And, and, and I can go and look at that sheet. So it's pretty cool. Well, it's, it's especially valuable too, when you get into some of the more archaic, you know, continental European and British stuff where there yeah. is such, you know, such variety and vast differences in mechanisms and, you know, little nuances. And there's, there's certain things you want to pay very close attention to. And, and some of those things may have only been, made on a certain gun for a certain period of time. And, and yep. you really want to be able to keep track of that stuff and understand it before you buy something. So. Yeah. We, we jumped way in deep here. We're talking, I would say pretty technical gun fitting stuff. Um, if anybody, I, I hate to make too many assumptions. If anybody listening to this is, if your kind of head is spinning as Dell's talking about drop at nose, drop at heel, comb, all that stuff. You know, we've done a couple episodes on gun fit. Dell, you were on, I think it was episode number 18 and I'm, I'm just going to guess that our conversation started with a little bit more fundamentals and basics there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be a, that'd be a good one for people to listen to, but we'll continue on here. Ted, I kind of, I sort of, I summed up my reasoning for wanting to, to come over and see Dell. I'd been fit once before and uh, enjoyed my time with, with the other fitter and the shooting instructor. I, from getting to know Dell and talking to him, I wanted to, I wanted to get Dell's perspective on gun fit and shooting and, kind of playing this trip over here. So that's, that's where I was coming at it. But again, I'm a bird hunter. I want to be a better wing shooter. I made that assumption for you. Any other thing? What, what, what else went yeah. into your decision to, um, to come here and do this? Well, I mean, really it, folks are listening to this podcast. I mean, I know you've got a lot of new to upland hunting individuals out there that are just starting, yep. just starting out. So I've been, you know, hunting my whole life, I'm 38 years old. So I've got, you know, a solid 20 years of what I would call passionate grouse hunting in my under my belt, and I'm not a good shot. Okay, I mean I'm I'm not afraid to admit that. Yep. Most of my close friends know that I've got a self-deprecating sense of humor somewhat about it. But uh, you know I'm looking down the barrel the rest of my life, knowing that I'm probably going to grouse hunt as long as I can possibly do it. Yep. So at some point, you know I haven't I don't have a lot of money invested in guns. I'm at the stage in my life where I'm starting to you know think 
more about that. And if you if you're getting serious about looking at at uh, a tool that you're using as part of a hobby that is you know going to be the rest of your life, it's a pretty cheap investment in in understanding the geometry of your body and how it fits with the fundamentals of mounting that gun and shooting so that the pellets go where your eyes are looking yeah or in my case where one eye is looking because you know if your gun doesn't fit you've got kind of a really ineffective club in your hands you yeah. know yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and i always you know i kind of would make the analogy of it's having a gun that does not fit you well is really akin to saying uh, you know, uh, a big game hunter who buys a very expensive rifle and then puts a cheap scope and mounts on it. You know, it's yep. you can have the most expensive, wonderful, fine shotgun in the world, and if you know at twenty yards it's shooting a foot high and two feet to the left, you know, mm-hmm. what's the point, really? Yep. You know, so yeah. So I mean, in, in summary, it's just at the stage that I'm at, I've been interested to find out. Really, I, I know my torso is longer in proportion to like my legs let's say so my mm-hmm. upper body is longer which helped me in certain aspects of my life athletically and things like that but I've, i know for a fact every gun i've ever shot has been too short yeah. for me and i know i'm compensating while shooting and shooting sporting clays with repetitive mount and really focusing and paying attention on mounting the gun Despite, you know, the scores on, you know, just focusing on coming out of shooting sporting clays with a more consistent gun mount, well, now I want to take it to the next level of at least understanding what are my dimensions, you know. Yeah. So going forward, well, if I fancy the idea of doing a project with a gun or or looking at a gun in the future, is it even close, you know, to something that would fit me? Yeah. So. Well, and, and, and as I said before, you know, when you're in the field or you're on the sporting clays course and you're trying to, you know... I like the term flow state, you know, when you're in that flow state of shooting, when you need to be really concentrating on the bird and what's going on around you or concentrating on the target and, you know, seeing the angles, you don't need to have in your mind the background noise of, you know, having to compensate for bad gun fit, you know, knowing that I've really got to suck this stock in and I've got to push my head down and to the to the right to get it to shoot where I'm looking mm-hmm. and which is which is essentially exactly what Ted is, was doing you know and you know he's not as deformed as it might sound when we when we <laughs> talk about it okay <laughs> but but no Ted Ted's Ted's got some 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 dimensions that aren't really standard they're a little bit of an outlier and you know he's he's a taller guy he's got longer arms um a little bit longer neck and his yeah huge hands and he's 90% of the guns he's ever picked up are not going to fit him. Yeah. You know Nick 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 is a little bit different. He's more average. He's he's got one, you know, he shoots a slightly higher gun, you know, dimension than say a lot of off the rack guns would be, but but Nick would be somebody who could probably shoot most off the rack guns fairly well. Not bad. You know, Ted not so much, you know. So <laughs> Yeah, and that's where a little bit of basics, you know, a lot of guns if you're going and buying a brand new gun off the rack They've got to produce these guns. They've got to make them at a certain dimension. So they typically mm-hmm. make them at a dimension that's going to be kind of right in the middle and fit most people. Great example is a guy like Ted, where that's not doing him any favors. Any good, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Whereas I, I might be able to to sneak by a little bit better, but again, now I know. You know, now we know. We kind of have an idea of of how guns fit. And so, real basic 
gun fitting, we'll touch on this briefly. That'll kind of lead us to sort of the next step is I'd like to have you describe how the flow state that he was in. No, I love, I love, court. I it was like well, Keanu Reeves, these <laughs> targets. He was shooting him like yeah. 10 feet off the launcher. Yeah. He was, I think, <laughs> I think he was, he was picking spots just 10 feet off the launcher yep. and just, he was intercepting them. <laughs> yeah. No, but shotguns, we don't aim, we point, right? This is, this is basic, basic wing shooting. We don't aim, we point our right eye, our right eye if we're right handed, hopefully left eye if you're left handed or you've got, there's some weird eye dominates things in there, but that's the rear sight. Mm-hmm. So the whole reason for the trigun, moving the stock around, we move the stock around and the way that the gun is set up to get our right eye in the perfect place. Right. Using it like a rear sight. Correct. So, so effectively where you look, where your focus is when you mount that gun is where that pattern is going to lay. Yep. That's the key. And the best way to see that out to the 16 yard patterning yep. plate and we yep. went out there next. And yeah, so once once we get out to the plate, so so back to what we were talking about before, I've done kind of an initial analysis and roughly set up the dimensions, and we go to the plate and we'll shoot a series of shots at the plate, and you know, there's a circular, so the plate is a, a thick steel plate, and some of them have one target, mine's large enough that I can put three different targets on it. It's and like- Four by six, let's say. I don't know, maybe. Yeah, I think it's a little, might be, it's a standard sheet of sheet metal, so that might, yeah, some somewhere in that neck of the woods. Yeah. Um, you, we, we put a spray-painted little six-inch target on it, and then you shoot at that, and through a series of shots, we can determine, you know, where that gun is essentially shooting compared to where you're looking. And then through through successive alterations on the the tri gun we we move your eye around and essentially sight that into where the pattern that you're shooting is right where you're focusing and looking when you mount the gun yeah um, and it was very evident when Nick Nick had it you know again Nick had an extremely consistent gun mount which makes my life very easy the the only thing I can't control for in a gun fitting is if somebody has a very erratic mount because yeah. then I don't have good data to make decisions as far as the alterations but Nick was you know very consistent so we did when we got out there he I had set the trigun up off of some base measurements taken from his 28 gauge RBL and I had him shoot his RBL first and yep. and saw that he was shooting low and so I immediately then because I kind of had a hunch that, yeah, if he's shooting that low, then the trigun needs to come up. So I adjusted the trigun up, and we did a series that... When you say up, you mean the whole stock? I, I adjusted the... Up. Effectively, I say it... I, I adjusted the the stock up, raising the at-face measurement and the heel measurement and the nose measurement up, lessening the drop, which would, you know, back to the example, so that is effectively like moving the rear sight up. Yeah. So his pattern came up, and then he was shooting pretty much level vertically, but he was still just a touch to the left. Yeah. So I made a – then we went back. I made another slight adjustment, giving him a little bit more cast. And then his second series, he was, you know, 50-50 right to left and 50-50 up and down, you know, right on top of it. Yeah. So, And I think from the, the fitty – at that point that the visuals on the pattern plate, it, it's really cool. And that's where, you know, it's a, it's a white pattern plate. And as soon as you pull the trigger, you see the pattern and you see the gray dots pop immediate up feedback, immediate right? feedback. Mm-hmm. The one I've talked about that on this podcast before you go out and you shoot clay pigeons. If you miss, you have, you, you may have no idea where right. you, know, you might right. know, yep. you might suspect you were behind it or whatever, but to see it on the, on the patterning plate, you see it there. And then that's where the consistent gun mount comes into play. If you consistently 
mount it again and you shoot it two or three more times. And if, if there is a pattern there, you'll see that you're con- I was consistently shooting low and left. And that's where you can, you get that good information and you can adjust the trigun and bring the pattern. And then you can shoot the next dot and the next dot. And we could see the pattern moving with, with Ted, he went through a couple rounds of that and we could see the pattern slowly move to where it was, you were getting it more on top of that orange dot. So to back up a second, when we're yep. talking about when Nick mentions that he shot his RBL and then he shot the trigun and he was shooting low and left, low and left. It's not that he was doing anything wrong with his, he was pointing the gun at the dot, but the pattern Correct. is hitting low and left. Right. Correct. So it's, yes. so it's a function of where his focus is was different than where the gun was physically throwing yes. the pattern with the yep. existing stock dimension. So we altered the stock dimensions again to make the gun right. shoot exactly where his focus is. Correct. Uh, yeah. And that's a key point of that because when you instruct us to shoot the orange target, you know, it's bring the barrels up. So they're basically resting right under the, right under the dot. We're going to make a, not a slow, but we're going to make a a deliberate gun mount that is not too fast or too slow, but it's intentional. We're going to get a good mount on the gun and pull the trigger. Right. Without any compensation. Right. Without adjusting and wiggling it ourselves into the gun that we might be used to doing, you know, subconsciously, but all the while we're staring straight at that orange dot. And when you're staring at the orange dot and then you see the pattern hit low and left, then that's when you start to see, okay, mm-hmm. so this Being gun Being able to alter it and move it around. And, yeah. Yep. Yep. So the fitting that you and I did was fairly quick. We shot a couple of dots and we had the trigun. You made a couple of adjustments and we got to that third dot and I was, I was basically, the gun was shooting right where I was looking. Mm-hmm. And at that point... You now, you've got a measuring stick that measures all the dimensions on the gun. You basically jot stuff down, and I kind of have my dimensions at that point. Yep, you've got a working set of dimensions. And so the next step is if if you have guns with you, what we did was we measured two of you. We measured your RBL and your and you had a sterling worth there. And then we can kind of sit down and look at all those dimensions and do a feasibility study and say, well, we can possibly make some alterations and get from here to there or, you know this one just isn't going to be able to be altered enough to, to fit you well under any circumstances. Yeah. So there's that. And then the other thing is now you've got that set of dimensions. So anytime you're thinking about purchasing a gun in the future, or if you were to ever have, you know, a custom stock made or that sort of thing, you've got that information right there. It's really, it's a really helpful tool, especially in the American gun culture. Gun fit was like a lottery. You know, you just, you went around to a gun rack and you'd pick up random guns and just kind of grab one that felt good and, you know, that would kind of play into which gun, you know, a factor into which gun you buy would end up buying. And then does it fit you or not? You know, yeah. it's it's kind of a crapshoot. And having those dimensions really clears that up. Yeah, it's definitely a nice thing to have when you're looking at new guns to know where you are, where your dimensions are relative to those guns that you might be considering. And I guess from that perspective, well, no, let's, let's get Ted's, let's get Ted's take. Ted, you went through the fit. Any surprises? What uh, you know? You had suspicions about guns possibly being too short for you, and you overcompensating. I, I think it kind of played out that way. But mm-hmm. what was it like shooting the patterning plate, and going through it? Um, I think you know justification, knowing that the guns have never really fit well. And like you said, you can kill birds with a gun that doesn't fit well. Just right. your your instincts take over, and you learn 
you're, just not as effectively. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. And it's you're on. You feel like you're on the struggle bus. You know, half the time yep. you're shooting, and you can get in these bad streaks. So, having gone through that cycle myself many times of you know the highs and lows of shooting well for a streak and not shooting well, that and and then it just becomes such a you know you don't know where you're shooting. You thought maybe I shot high. So then you start trying to compensate and shoot a little low and you, mm-hmm. you get into this, this feedback loop and, you know, into one of those slumps, you can, it, it can just be you're playing mind games with yeah. yourself. And it's just and, something you want to know. I, or for me, I wanted to know going forward, you know, I'm going to continue to shoot the guns. I'm not, I don't have a project in the near future, but at least now I have a set of dimensions that I can say, well, you know what your starting point is. Yeah, right? and I and I and I also have a ready set of excuses for my buddies. Yep. Know? Well, Dell <laughs> said the gun's too yep. short. It's for like me, I said so. on the range. If I if I if the gun's too far too far out of whack for me to make fit you, I can I can you know give you a prescription for excuses. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah, and you can you can vol- I mean, we can have Mike Mike and Garrett can call they can call Dell and he'll tell them. You know, yeah. I mean, he well, and, the gun. and Ted was a really good example of that. You know, his the gun the gun he was shooting was almost two inches short for him. Literally, he he takes just. You know, he takes about a 16-inch length of pole, which which is very long. But but you know, if you could look at him, it, it it's obvious that he would take a long length of pole. Yeah. And he's shooting a gun that's 14 and three quarter inches length of pole. It's you know, right there, he's going to have a lot of difficulties really being able to maintain focus on targets and birds because it's so far off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The cast, though, too, was a with, yeah. With the, and this is a point to highlight what I think is a really a revolutionary. Well, it's easy for me to say revolutionary. This is the first time I've really done a fitting, you know, so it doesn't carry a lot of weight. But the gun, the trigun that Dell has, I mean, for him to to hit that patterning board and see consistently three times, yeah, I'm that pattern is eight inches to the left yep. at sixteen yards. You know, he loosens up the screws, he pivots the ball, you shoot it again, it's you know, the pattern, the center of the pattern is now two inches to the left. Mm-hmm. So it's just and to learn that in two you know, two rounds of shooting at the plate, and then he takes the trigun and pulls measurements off the trigun, and he can say, "Hey, man, you should be shooting a gun with, you know, mm-hmm. a half inch, you know, three eighths of an inch of cast, or a half inch, of, you know, whatever." Yep. That alone, you know, if you're asking me what my takeaways are, you don't. I mean, I won't forget that ever. It's not that it's going to help me tomorrow shooting the same guns that I'm shooting, but yep. now I have the ammo, and I'm more likely to go out and try and figure out a way to get a gun that's going to fit me. Yep. You know, and, and find more success. So, yep. and and you know, it, the thing I want to say too is, you know, you know, first off, the we're talking a lot about a trigun, but a, the trigun is just one of many tools that we use to ascertain what your ideal gun fit is. So, and the other thing, gun fit is it's a dynamic thing. You know, it can change if you gain or lose weight. It can change right. if you have a difference in posture. You know, I I had some issues with my knees and my stance is a lot different than it used to be now. And I'm I'm kind of getting back to what my old stance is. So my guns fit a little differently. And it, it is a process and there's, you know, a lot of guys will come back who are, who are serious shooters and they'll have their gun fit assist, assessed every two or three years. Yep. You know, people can go through visual, you know, as you get older, your, your vision changes and, you know, maybe you might start to have an eye dominancy issue and it's good to understand the concept of gun fit and kind of stay on top of it. And it really is in, in when a gun fits well, you have confidence. That's very important when you're in the field. I don't know if making you a better shot is the term I like to use, but it'll make you a more confident shot and put you in that zone where you really can concentrate 
on on making the shot in your surroundings and not you know god did i put my cheek down hard enough this time and by that time your two tenths of a second you have to shoot at that grouse is over and gone and you're shooting at leaves instead of Mm -hmm. grouse shots at grouse yep yeah there you go yeah that's a great point and you you talked about flow state earlier you know shooting is definitely it's one of those things where confidence mental mindset framework it it requires conscious thought and preparation and then it requires repetition muscle ahead of time because when you're in the field and you've got two tenths of a second to shoot at a grouse none of that's happening it's all muscle memory and it's it it's a that gun needs well, to come up naturally. Think of it like this, and I and I and I draw this from a golf analogy. And we were making fun of Nick playing golf earlier yep. today, but I heard it once said that that you know during a round of golf, the actual time that you spend swinging and the club is in contact with the ball for an eighteen-hole round of golf is like it's it's like two seconds. It's, it's it. nothing. Yeah. And and think about you know how how long during a day of hunting, and you know depending on how many flushes you get. What is the actual amount of time you spend mounting that gun and pulling the trigger? Yeah. We're, we're talking about seconds. To put all of that machinery and that ability together and try to hit something that's flying at oblique weird angles with a moving shot pattern. It, it, again, I, I've said it before, but it's amazing we hit anything at all. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So the they, less the less you have to think about it, the better. You they know? talk about baseball being hitting a round ball with a round bat. And the ball is, you know, not traveling in a straight line coming at you. It's probably one of the hardest in sports to do. But I would, I would venture a guess that hitting a, an erratically flying rough grouse through typical grouse cover is right up there. Are you on saying the you're better than a rod? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. But here's the here's the key to hitting rough grouse is shooting a lot for yeah, me. So yes. we're talking like hundreds of wow. rounds a year. You know, your typical. I don't want to say typical, but Shooting the, fast and with deadly accuracy. Well, the average, That's, you know, the average bird hunter is maybe you know, getting out there for four or five weekends mm-hmm. and feeling pretty good, like they got out a lot. Yep. Well, out of four or five weekends, and then you've got the next level of folks that are hunting during the week plus the weekends and, and are serious about it. I mean, if you're not putting out two or three hundred rounds a fall at birds, it's really hard to build a baseline of confidence for sure, know, especially at grouse. You know, it's one second they're there the next second they're gone if your feet are out of position you know you you need 20 flushes a day to get three it's, or four it, it, good shooting opportunities grouse and woodcock hunting is a tough sport to truly gain solid experience at yes you know and yep. for 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 shooters and for dogs you know that's why it's you know it is it is one of the more difficult you know subsets of upland hunting there is so yeah i think mm-hmm. that kind of wing shooting i mean the argument could easily be made gun fit is even more important because we need every advantage we possibly yeah, could have. Yeah. You know, you can't yep, be, absolutely. You, if you're struggling with, I mean, we sat on the sporting clays range tonight. Like when you go out and you miss and you know, you mismounted the gun, mm-hmm. you know, I brought the gun up bad and I just knew it and it's a clear miss. So like anything in that gun that is going to make it more likely that you're going to mount it poorly or not get it up there, you're worse off for it. Absolutely. Another round boys. Beers are good. Mm-hmm. How close are they? They're cold. Are they right there? Yeah, Dell's got them. <laughs> I think I can. One thing I jotted down here that I thought might be interesting, and I know Nick will edit this stuff, but um, no, this is this is Ted Summer uncensored. No, just <laughs> Summer. There we go. 
I mean, to transition a little bit away from just the technicalities of the gun fit and right. the trigun. I mean, I feel like we really pounded that um, home, and it's and it's obviously the topic of the conversation. But something I found interesting, and I've been very cognizant of since I've gotten what I would call more serious into into bird hunting with a dog that can reliably find grouse, where I know that it's up to me to to put a good shot together because you know, I don't want to let my dog down time and time and time again. Yep. Um, is the, and Dell talked about this last night a little bit, but, uh, what I call shooting birds with your feet, or even you want to use clay targets for an example. And you mentioned your stance changing a little bit, Dell, but this, the laser focus that's required. And then also just being in balance or having your feet in position. One thing that's really improved the odds for me is number one, approaching pointed birds in the correct fashion, mm -hmm. anticipating the flush, anticipating shooting openings, being ready, and then also having your feet prepared to shoot where it's likely that bird. Yeah, setting I mean, yourself up for the best opportunity. Yep. Right. You know? You're taking a chance every time you approach a point, and you might anticipate the bird going one way, and it might totally you know, fool you, but if you can increase your odds by anticipating where yep. that bird's going and prepare mentally for that gun mount... Yeah, not, and, not even thinking it, about it, but just have the gun ready. And, and again, having having a gun that's properly fit—that's just one less thing that's going through your mind when you've mm -hmm. got all that, you know, that feedback that you're trying to put together to to put that, you know, two tenths of a second shot opportunity, you know, and be successful with it. You know, there's so much going on in such a short period of time. Every little bit of minutia you can pull away helps. Yeah, you know, and and one other thing too. You know, when I do gun fittings, and I just I just wanted to mention this before, but you know, I do take into account what type of birds people are hunting. You know, and we I talked about this with Nick that grouse hunters specifically, we tend to stand more upright, more erect, and then we also tend to have our heads up a little more because we're not in a position a lot of times where we can get into a classic Churchill stance and put, you know, seventy to eighty percent of the weight on our front foot and get you know get our head put forward a little bit it's like no it's like you're standing there you're looking at your dog you're listening to the beeper you're you're thinking about stepping over that log so i'm i'm not in horrible foot position and then the bird goes up mm -hmm. you know and, and and in those times you are you're gonna have your head up looking around a little more and you're gonna be standing more upright so you have to take that into account yeah most gross hunters will shoot guns that are a little higher than they normally would for, say, a classic sporting clays gun or a, or a gun that you might shoot at pheasants or sharp tails or something. So yeah. just just something to take into account. Sporting clays range tonight, anything that you uh, – we weren't doing a whole lot of critiquing and, and coaching out there, but anything that you saw from, from our gun fits to then going out and shooting, I mean <laughs> – you know, you were having fun. You were out there shooting too. Not but. really. You know, you know, having having shot competitively a little bit in the past. You know, I and and not to evade your question that that's not what I'm trying to do. <laughs> I just I just want to make a point that answer the question, right? But <laughs> it, it, it was taught to me that you you need to when you're shooting, you need to have times where kind of make a de a decision before you go and shoot the round. Is this a round where I'm just having fun mm. and trying to get the muscle memory down, you know, trying to maybe get into that flow state we keep talking about a little bit and practice that? Or is this going to be a round where we're going to sit down and do and, and assess what's going on? Sure. Because what can happen is if you try to mix those two things together, again, there's the classic guy that's on your squad that's always like, and, and I hate these people, yeah. but, oh, you shot low. 
oh, no, you shot high. Oh, you're shooting over it again. And then that's in the background. And then maybe you start to compensate a little bit. And, and maybe that person doesn't know what they're talking about. And so when I'm on the range with people, I, I really like I'm there to have a good time and I'm there to be encouraging and I'm there to hopefully help the people around me have a good time. But, yeah. you know, form wise, I, I thought both of your guys' form was real good. I mean, I thought. Nick, you should, you know, as far off as that RBL is from where the fitting data was, you shot it very well. Ted, and, and this is, I'm not saying anything bad. Ted didn't shoot oh, that I'm terribly ready. well, but, but his gun fits him so horribly. I'm surprised he didn't shoot himself in the foot with it. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I mean, literally you roll out on the range with a gun that's an inch and a half too short and has close to zero cast and you need, you know, five sixteenths at the face. It's, You'd be good shooting around corners and stuff, right? Yeah. Well, I can see you, around. You did corners. better than I. You did better than I thought you would. Really, I mean, we didn't get into this, Dell, but I mean, I'm going to show you right now. This is what it's like. Yeah, I'm yep. showing Dell. I've got amblyopia, and if anybody's aware of this, it's uh, a lazy eye. Okay, I'm just going to put this out I there, mean, Nick. You know? I would have never known. Oh, uh, well, it, it works with the ladies because that's an icebreaker. You know, you can there you go come at them with the cross eye, take them <laughs> off guard, and that's. So anyway, startle them. <laughs> that or they think that you're looking at the person sitting next to them. You know? <clears throat> but it is, uh, I mean, the, it's a real world situation that not everybody is cut out of a cookie cutter. No. And it just underlines the importance. It's a of perfect no- example of that. Uh, yep. Of knowing, um, knowing yourself and how and how a piece of equipment that you're trying to use fits you. So I yep. mean, you wouldn't go and buy a pair of shoes that's too. Sh- Two sizes too big and try and walk around. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean, you, and it's it's something similar. So well, and I have to say too that you know the the trickiest things I deal with in gun fittings are are eye dominancy issues, eye issues. Really, that's the one. Th- other than a consistent gun mount, but I view that as more of kind of an aptitude mechanical thing. You know, a lot of people can't affect if they have a condition like yours or if they're right handed and left eye dominant or blah blah blah. And those really are the most difficult things to deal with because some people can switch, some people can't. Sometimes a magic dot or, you know, you know, giving your non, the eye you don't want to be dominant, the inability to focus, that'll kind of solve the problem. Sometimes it doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's, it's just a real struggle. And again, gun fits a fluid thing and, and you're doing the best you can with the, the tools you have. And a lot of times you can overcome it and sometimes you just do the best you can. Yeah. So I guess, you know, where I think you might lose somebody is the thought of a, a bespoke a custom stock, right? Because mm-hmm. the custom stock is, it's not a cheap process. No. And no. so what What I want to get at is, so we go through this and we get the dimensions. You, you're going to help each customer. You're going to talk to us and tell us, you know, where the dimensions, where we should be and then where the guns that we currently own are, what can be done. Right. Yep. And can we, can we get from here to there? Yep. It's, but it's, that's the feasibility. How side. much, I guess, because when we when we do gun dimensions, we're talking like sixteenths of an inch, right? So mm-hmm. the chances that you're going to go into a store or go on Guns International and find a gun that's going to hit all those things is very low. So where is the wiggle room? How how should we approach buying guns, or should it should it always be from the from the perspective of can this gun be put into the dimensions well, that I, I need y- to be at? I, I, and that's where, you know, I can help people to, to basically figure that out when they're looking at buying a gun. If I'm doing that inspection, you know, I can say, this is as close as we can potentially get. And maybe that's, close that's enough. good enough. Maybe okay. you want a little more precision. The other thing is too, there, there are, I don't know if you'd call it like, you know, a fudge factor, but if somebody really wants a specific gun or they have a gun, you know, technically speaking, if you've got to have a little, 
if you're going to sway between having too much drop and not enough drop, you want to go with not enough. You you want the gun Less. to possibly shoot high rather than possibly shooting low. Sure. I find, too, that a little extra cast is more beneficial, or I should say, you, so you can get into the gun. Having having not enough is worse than having too much, I okay. guess is what I'm trying to say. So yep. if, you're, if, if you have to err, you want to err with a little more cast, and you want to err with the gun being a little bit too high. Also with length of pull, I mean... If the gun, I'd rather see the gun be a touch too long than a touch too short. Because if it's if it's if it's too short, you're constricting the movement. Yep. You know, where if it's too long, it's not constricting the movement as much, per se, on on most of the targets you're going to typically shoot in the field. It's opening up your yeah. arms. Yeah, and and where and, and again, I again, I don't know if I answered that question succinctly, but where you end up compared to where your ideal dimensions are, and and what's satisfactory, that changes every time with every gun because yeah. you, you know maybe i can maybe the way the the gun you want to have altered is i can hit those numbers every single one of them perfectly maybe we have to take into account that the comb is a little bit wider on that gun so it needs a little more cast and it, it's it's all it's a every gun's every situation like that is very unique yeah dive into that just be. a little bit though like when you I mean, we're talking about uh, theoretical situations here but just let's say Let's say someone comes to you, the dimensions, they're not that far off. They're within the realm of making some adjustments. Just touch on that a little bit. So, like, if you're able to, let's say, bend a stock, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, touch on that a little bit, like that process. I mean, what? how would that work in your shop? So, you know, I have a hot oil stock bending machine in my shop that I do, you know, stock bending. I also can do alterations on auto loaders and um, through-bolt type guns, which were, are typically your over and unders by hot oil bending and altering the inletting and using the pressure of the through bolt to pull the stock around. So yeah, you know, the I can look at a gun and assess whether or not it's a good candidate to be bent. And then, um, you know, with, with some diagrams and, you know, with the experience I have, I can kind of say, well, if we, you know, we need to move you over as an example, like if I were to have a gun for you, a, a standard gun that would say be an, an eighth off at the face and you need five sixteenths. Well, I know it's got to come over X amount. So I would look at that gun. I would say, well, it looks like it probably can or can't be bent. If it could be bent, then I would, then I would bend it. And you're I talking would, like by applying the hot yeah, heat, the, yeah, heat oil. steam or oil or whatever. Well, it's, the process. So, so the hot oil bending process is you're using and you don't have, some people use heat lamps. Some people use, um, you know, there's a there's a myriad of different ways. Essentially, what you're doing is you're getting the the wood warm enough to the point that ambient moisture starts to evaporate away. And when that when that moisture evaporate evaporates, it it affects the the bonds between the phloem and the xylem. So, you know, think of a handful of straws, and the straws are all glued together. When you when when you heat that up, uh, and there's moisture in it, you can essentially move those straws around. The gl- the glue that's holding them together is is pliable and then when it cools back down the glue kind of resets and, mm-hmm. and that's a very kind of sure Technical. spitballing yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. analysis of what's the pores, going on let's just say it's the pores within the wood like if you cut a piece of celery crossways and you yep, look at it's the a end bunch of, it, of tubes it's just yep. pores that are moving water up and down same thing yep. within that stock it's a piece of wood mm-hmm. that has porous openings in it right yep. and that's what you're doing is making it flexible yep making it flexible and then moving it and and you know then once I move it to a certain point, so so the unit I have circulates hot oil um, over the stock, and I can kind of pr- precisely control the the flow and the temperature. And there's there's different zones of heat for you know how how far I want to move stuff, and 
you know, that, that is a very, like, there is an art to that. You know, yeah. you, you do several hundred of them. I mean, you, you know, I, you have a real good feel when you heat a stock up, like how far can I push it between yeah. before I damage it, you know? And I've only ever, I've only ever damaged a couple. And usually it's a result of, you know, some type of flaw that was unseen from the, the outside. Cause I'm typically very cautious about how I do that. So that that's hot oil bending or or stock bending as they call it. Again, some people use heat lamps. Some people will use, um, you know, there, there's various methods for doing that. And then the other way that you do it is, um, you know, with the shim systems that some of the auto loaders come with, or you know, in in you know one case there's an over and under that has a, a shim system that to E28 it. Twenty eight. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. The Benellis, and uh, I can. Typically, as as I told these guys earlier, you know, I can alter those shims on some of those guns to get more adjustment than they come with from the factory. Um, the Beretta specifically, the the you know Explorer A400 series, I can move those around all over the place. And then for over and unders, you know, through bolt style guns, those a lot of times I will hot oil bend and I will alter the the way that the stock is inlet, so affecting the fit between the wood and the metal and using the pressure of the through bolt to pull it around. And that's that's also a very delicate process because if you know if you do it correctly, it's super effective. If you if you go too far with it, you yep. end up with pieces breaking out. Mm-hmm. You know, so so that's I mean, but but that's when you, when alter- you talk about adjusting guns, yep, I mean that's, that's the alteration. That's process. the nuts and bolts of yep. like when you finally get around to trying to f- create those dimensions. Yep, that's, yep, the, that's process. the alteration. And then then there's so as as well as you know physically you know moving the stock around there's uh you know you can you can change the pitch which is the angle of the butt, you know, and that's that kind of is is affected by how large a chest people people have, how muscular, you know, how how muscular their pectoral muscles are. Um I'm trying to think what else uh you know, Monte Carlo is something we really haven't talked about, but on a rare occasion you know, you'll need a Monte Carlo where the comb line isn't straight, mm-hmm. um, and that that would happen classically with someone like you, Ted. If your if your neck was a little longer, you'd be a prime candidate for a Monte Carlo because as as with both of you, your initial guns that you picked up, you saw that when you mounted it and you got your face down on the comb, there was still a fairly good amount of heel mm-hmm. up above your shoulder, uh, affecting that comb angle. Right. So we're having to bring the stock up so high. The heel of the gun is, is right. sticking up over our shoulder. So then we lower the we lower the heel, but keep the at face dimension the same. We just we're yep. we're, we're keeping the stock in a straight line, but but just changing that angle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. well, Nick asked me direct question about like my take after the fitting. I mean, giving me yours. If if anybody's aware, you know, Nick has kind of got the the GQ look going on here in oh the Upland God. world. GQ, the high cheekbone, right? He is kind of pretty. <laughs> well, I, I well, I'm observing. <laughs> I'm observing you work through the gun fitting with Nick just in the background, kind of, you know, listening to your process, and that you know what you you know talked about with both of us is that you know Nick is a little bit more closer or more closer, but closer to what you'd call like the typical frame. Yeah. yeah. But he also does have what you call a higher cheek. Right. So, so he shoots a, a little bit higher gun. Right. Know? I mean, yep. I don't know if that is a segue for you to talk about your experience now. I yeah. mean, well, what's your take? That was, that was new to me today, right? Like that was something that didn't, didn't necessarily come up in the other fitting that I did. And I, I've gone through this thing where I've, the last couple of years I've shot a Fox Sterlingworth that's got two and, you know, three quarters worth of drop on at, of at drop. the heel, and it's got yeah. a lot of drop, right? And and I've killed grouse with it, but if anything, I would have thought 
I would have thought, geez, that RBL that I have, that's that's too high. It's got to come down because I've mounted my Fox Sterlingworth thousands of times probably over the last couple of years, and I'm overcompensating on that gun, so I feel like I can shoot it. And I would have thought that if anything, the RBL was high because when I when I first started mounting that RBL, I felt like I could see a lot more rib than I could on my Fox, which is obvious because it's, it's a lot higher. But hearing that even that gun was a little bit low, that was a surprise and something that I was happy to know about. Well, and this is something, too. I don't know if you were there when I was talking to Ted about how, you know, he said he felt like he was seeing a lot of rib. And and that's one thing that Americans, because we predominantly shoot autoloaders or, or we start shooting a gun with a, with a flat-style rib, yep. you know, a swamp rib game gun, you're not necessarily going to look down that rib because it actually falls lower than the profile of the barrels and then comes back up. So what what you instinctually want to do is then drop the barrels down so you're using the top of the receiver like the rib yep. and that's in effect you know quite Aiming. a bit lower than where it's actually shooting. Interesting. So again, you can kind of assess pretty well sometimes where your gun's going to shoot on a, you know, your your standard over and under by kind of looking down the rib and making sure the rib is is flat and you see the Maybe if it's got two beads, you see the you see the beads lined up and, and blah yeah. blah blah. But when you when you're shooting game guns, it really your sight picture really only involves concentration on the target and that front bead, and you really shouldn't be concentrating on the bead. No, not at all. You know, yeah. If if yeah. you look at most really good game guns, the beads are tiny. They're yeah. they're little tiny. You know, less than a sixteenth of an inch dots. Yeah. And I mean, you see a lot of really good game shooters that just they. They don't even want to look at that. They take the bead right off. You'd be surprised when you go and see it, you know, at some of these shooting tournaments that are specifically like, you know, the Southern Side-by-Side tournament down in Sanford, North Carolina, you know, a lot of those guys, their 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 guns just don't have beads, Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. so. Well, I can confidently say that the only time I see the bead on my shotgun is when I'm mounting it in my basement. Yeah, that's Because good. I mount that's it. Good. You don't want to be looking I at I mount that. it and I look at it because I'm trying to see where that mount was. And I don't know if that's good, bad, or indifferent. But that's when I see it. When I'm shooting at clays or birds, I'm never looking at the bead. I mean, I have. I guess I have that going for me at least. Yeah. Well, you've moved beyond the right. You've moved beyond the fundamentals of you're practicing the gun mount. You're shooting enough that you're confident with where that gun's coming up. Back in my partridge hunting days, partridge. I saw the bead. I saw the bead quite a bit. <laughs> I mean, I'm not afraid. To I've never that. heard that delineation that some people talk about, where if it's if it's sitting still, it's a partridge, and if it's flying, it grows. Yeah, I, I don't know. About you know, that. I learned that. I learned that after years of being a quote unquote partridge hunter. That I, I learned that, but I didn't know any better at the time, and <laughs> I didn't. That was just the way that we did it. That northern Minnesota lifestyle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? I actually prefer. The term that I, that I first heard from Jerry Havel is, I shot a lot of birds in the pre-flight position. <laughs> <laughs> We've all got friends like that. Well, so somebody we both know who's who's uh, maybe the proprietor of this establishment one time said to me, um, if you're shooting a deer, do you yell at it? You know, do you yell at it? Do you get to run before you start shooting? You know, <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. anyway, but, right. but uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, the whole exercise was awesome. And and I guess the one point that I would like to some listeners to walk away, especially people that are not so familiar with all this stuff, is that it's really not black and white, so to speak. Like you just because a gun doesn't quote unquote fit you on paper doesn't mean you're not gonna go out and break a clay with it. Mm-hmm. But and, trying- and it, it's a progression, you know, yes. it's it's a oh, process yeah. getting getting figuring out your gun fit and 
and getting a gun that fits you well and you can shoot pr- proficiently, it's a process. It's not something that you just fix with, you know, two hours at the fitting plate and a stock bend. And right. I mean, you know, I say that be, I, may, I make a living taking people to the patterning plate and doing stock bends, but it is a process and it, and it is something that's ever changing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the old saying of, you know, fearing the person that only has one gun, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we all know somebody that is just a lights out shooter and maybe the gun does not fit them. They've learned to adjust to shoot that gun well. Yep. But at minimum, well, going, tend- going through this process underlines, you know, like the mechanics, you know, working and serving. That's is like it's basically triangles, you know. I mean, the fundamentals of shooting is is geometry. Yeah, you know, and you know, American shooters they tend to be such they they. You know, it's almost like there's this this uh, subconscious skill set of compensating as soon as you pick a gun up. Like, I've seen guys, especially, you know, fairly avid hunters or shooters, and I'll be, you know, BSing with them at a shoot, and they'll just, we'll just be wandering around down the table, and, you know, you're kind of picking up guns and shouldering them and looking at them and get a feel for them. And I'll look at these guys and really pay attention to them, and they will shoulder a gun once, and then I just kind of see this metamorphosis where they subconsciously kind of instantly adjust yep. and all of a sudden their head's in a different position they're 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 moving they're rolling their uh you know their cheek over or they're they're putting the gun higher and lower in the pocket so yep. we, we're kind of like tucking a, yeah, their shoulder yep, forward we're, we're this which we're is this, what i do right Every we're this time. group of chameleons that just really will adjust to everything and mm-hmm. and i have had some really trying experiences at the plate where i'll get a guy and and again typically typically a, a, an, an older person that's been shooting for a long time and it's typically a pretty good shot and they'll really just adjust to anything I throw at them. And that's where I had, you know, there are some exercises that I can do at the plate where, you know, we'll have them mount the gun and close both eyes and then open their eyes or we'll load the gun with a live round or a snap cap. So they're not always shooting a live round and things like that to get them to not compensate, you know, and it's Mm. tough. We just, we're, we're for some reason in the, in, in the evolution of our, gun fitting or gun you know hunting and shooting culture there's we just kind of lost the, the that necessity for gun fitting yeah. somewhere along the way well i think maybe it was just the way that upland hunting developed in this country was that it was it was just an out your, out your back door type thing right whereas perhaps in europe and some of the other countries like mm-hmm. it was more of a if you were going to go hunting you you were intentional about it yeah whereas yeah. a lot of people grew up in this country I'm just going to grab whatever gun Hardware I got here. Hardware store, shotgun. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yep. Yep. And so that's that's part of our culture today. But there is, you know, there are opportunities for people to move themselves along that progression if they want to learn more about how shotguns fit and shoot and what they can do to hopefully improve their own wing shooting. Yep. You got any uh, you got any bird hunting trips planned this fall? We're coming up on season pretty quick. Yeah, I, I've got you know with you know I, I had some knee surgery in the spring that was fairly invasive. So you know, depending on how the full recovery goes from that, I've got you know one or two sharp tail trips in northeastern Upper Peninsula, Michigan, and and that's that. I really that's a fun hunt. I Ooh, mean, keep that under the radar now. Well, that's <laughs> not a really could a non-resident even do that? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think you just have to buy the. Okay. You have to buy the tag, um, and I don't think it costs anything. But again, as we talked about last night, it's it's mainly private land hunting. There sure. there are some HAP zones you can get on, and you know, hopefully at some point the population will continue to increase, and they'll continue to you know push those zones open 
in a western direction but but that's a fun hunt and it's just kind of cool to to hunt those birds in michigan you right. know yep so that i i you know hope to make a couple trips to talk about western your, ups if you don't just take a brief aside i really like i think dell should talk about his dog just a little bit sure oh bill the Bill. Bill the Cocker. Bill the Thrill. Yeah. Bill the Thrill. The, the, the Blue Cocker. <laughs> yeah, you know, and again, I've, I've, I've said this to a bunch of people before, but, you know, coming from always having had pointing dogs, you know, Bill, he's a, he's a field-bred English Cocker out of um, Fallen, Wing Kettle, Fallen Wings Kennel, uh, you know, south, it's Appleton, Wisconsin, actually, and and he was my, my first ever flusher after having pointing dogs for forever, and it's been very exciting, very I wouldn't use the term enlightening, but maybe surprising about what these little flushing dogs can really do and how effective they can be and, and just how damn fun they can be. Yeah. You know, it's very exciting hunting. He's got a vibrant personality, too. He's yeah, he's got a great personality. I mean, I told you guys, I, I'm with my pointing dogs, I'm, I'm kind of non-breed specific. Like, I don't have a specific breed I want to have for the rest of my life for pointing dogs. But I'll tell you, I'll, I'll never, as long as I'm alive, I'll have an English cocker from here on out. Because, you know, the the personality in the house and just the the tenacity he has in the field and the bird drive he had. And, and now, you know, take my words here with a grain of salt because I've got a sample size of one and he's sure. only four. You know, this will be his fourth full season. But it's 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 exceptional. And the other thing is, too, you know, I, I do I do. I enjoy training, so I, I spend talk a about bit. You, yeah. Segue to that pigeon coop too. I mean, that was yeah, pretty I, impressive. I put a, I put a this pigeon. guy's just not a gunsmith here. I mean, he's a regular. Well, I've got kind of a hobby farm going. Does it know, all? And I've got, you know, I do a lot of gardening, and I've got chickens and pigeons and honeybees and and a lot of various stuff. But um, yeah, I, I like to train. That's that's you know, some people kind of view training as something you have to do. I view it. I, I enjoy training, and I think it's you know. Training repetitively with your dog, it, it builds a bond between you and the dog. And it, it's a bond that I think a lot of times you can't necessarily build in the field because you're, you're so goal focused when you're in the field. But yep. when you're out working, I, I did, uh, uh, Bill was the first dog also that I got serious about doing some placeboard training. And, um, that was very enlightening and very cool. I, I really enjoyed doing that with him. And it was, I, I mean, I plan on doing that with all the dogs I have in the future because it was so effective. But again, I, I put in a pigeon coop and, or, or a pigeon loft, to say it appropriately, and I, yeah. I've got quite a few birds in there. And it's nice to be able to just go out, and if you want to do some drills, you can do basically as many bird contract contact drills in a day as you like because you're, you know, some of my birds are not true homing birds, but if I'm within a couple miles of my house and, you know, all my training t- takes place on my, my 10 acres of property, which has open kind of rolling grass and pretty heavily wooded areas. Yep. So one question on going to the cocker, hunting with a lot of pointing dogs. I've never hunted grouse with a flushing dog. The one time I was in a field with a flushing dog, I, I don't even consider it hunting, but that's neither <laughs> here nor there. My, I imagine the shots, a lot of the shot opportunities being different. I imagine you getting different shot opportunities and, with a flushing dog. Birds coming at well, you, birds going erratically. Is that true? It, it is true, yeah. and it's and it's even more so true with the cockers because you know a lot of the flushing dogs – you know, it's it's basically that they're they're out in front of you and they're coursing in front of you and you're basically keeping them within shooting range of you and they're pushing birds up. You know, that's your classic, you know, style flushing dog hunting. And you know, whether that's out in the fields or that's in the woods, that's kind of what you're doing. Um, and and as I was saying last night, 
the cockers in in kind of this line specifically, and I think again, as I said, it, I think it has to do because you know from their British lines they were used. They're they're still very much used to hunt rabbits and around rabbit warrens. And of course, I don't let Bill chase rabbits at all ever, but they'll do this thing where they run out and they'll get out, you know, just maybe bordering on as far as I want them to get 25, 30 yards. And then they'll course over a certain amount, maybe 15 or 20 yards, and then they'll work back. And there's just, just, just kind of looping C pattern. And, and again, it's not like, you know, people talk about the yo-yo dog where it's straight out and straight back. It's, it's not that they're doing this looping pattern. So he's effectively running out and he's either going to bump one going out and you're going to get a shot or he will be coursing to the side and then start working back to you and he's pinned that bird between you and him. Yep. So he's either going to bust it and it's going to come out and fly right up your nose or fly by you, you know, quartering into you right or left or again the bird the bird is more worried about you than he or more worried about him than he is about you and the bird's running at you or one of your your then hunting you buddies. Him. Yeah, and all of a sudden the bird's like, "Oh crap, there's a big person standing around moving there and they flush and the first couple times that happened to me where i'm just walking along and all of a sudden i see bill get birdie and he's driving right back towards me you know and i see him coming in from about 30 yards away and all of a sudden a grouse just literally explodes three feet in front of me it's attention getting Mm -hmm. you know it really is the other fun thing with him too is is on woodcock like because they're you know woodcock i don't know what it is about their scent but a lot of times if they've just landed you know they kind of air wash a little bit sure. mm-hmm. and i can see him just like he's on one and he's just doing this you know he's he's like an angry hornet just kind of like it's there and he's just narrowing and coming closer and closer <laughs> like and closer that. and closer and all of a sudden you know yeah there it goes yeah yep yeah. exciting Speaking of rabbits, how do you think Ted did on that rabbit target tonight? He did. That was. I mean, I actually, <laughs> was, I actually was. I actually was so impressed. I yelled at him, and I think I threw him off. <laughs> yeah, on that right. bird, but, So, so on this course, there's there's a rabbit that they've put a a, a a mat in a spacer. So maybe one, maybe two times out of ten, the rabbit takes about an eight foot hop. Yep. And it got Nick. Yep, it did. And, I missed and, it. And I it took it. that. It took that evil hop for Ted, and he drilled it. <laughs> <laughs> I was really, that's what, you know, when you, I've talked about this eye problem, I actually closed my right eye and I used my left eye. No, Once you did took, Yeah. Oh, you yeah. You had tape over your left eye. Right. That's what I mean. I really wasn't even lucky. <laughs> it was, you were, you were using the force, man. You had your targeting computer off and you were shooting, you know. Oh, man. That's the, I was in the flow. There it was. You know, yep. Dell's flow yeah. state. I think that's as good a place as any to wrap this thing up. Dell, thank you so much. I, Ted and I, we chatted a little bit last night. I mean, we we had a blast hanging with you. You're a craftsman. You're a gun fitter. You're a good dude. You're a grouse hunter. I really appreciate you having us here. This was a ton of fun. Yeah. And uh, what's what's the best place for people to get in touch with you if they're interested in the stuff we're talking about? You know, you can contact me through Facebook, Instagram. Um, you know, all my contact info is right there. That's mainly where it's at. Okay. So we'll make sure people can find it. Ted, final thoughts. Well, I think people are going to need to pay attention to Dell's Instagram. He got a lesson from Nick on. I'm I'm a luddite when it comes to a lot of that stuff. <laughs> on the stories, what's, a, what's an Instagram story? No, I don't no, know what that is because <laughs> what you're what you're going to see and what and what I've really appreciated from Dell, and which is which has been really refreshing to come and visit with him, is to see the works in progress, the the gunsmithing profession, craft trade whatever you want to call it. I draw parallels to it from the surveying world of, you know, it's an apprenticeship type thing that this man has a skill beyond anything that I can comprehend that 
you need to check out his yeah you need to check out his uh what he's putting out there and i think he's going to be inspired to put a little bit more out there with the instagram stories just keeping track of maybe some of these works in progress just to see i mean it's a it's it's fun to tour is it's a it's a small modest shop but it's all set up just perfect for everything that he does and it's a little claustrophobic right now. Oh me, man, but but it, but it was but a, it, it works. It was a nice, there's refreshing a, there's break to take a to walk. Look at. Oh there's man, lots to look. it was sensory overload. Favorite thing you saw in his shop? There's lots of it, but what comes to mind? Well, I'm a sentimental type, so okay. Dell was showing us a bunch of projects that were mid, and maybe his clients might not like to know this, but he was showing us a bunch of these project guns that he has. Uh, one was the the double hammer pigeon gun that maybe that can come up for a conversation but at the end i he showed us a bunch of guns and it wasn't like hey this is the end of the tour it was just oh yeah and by the way here's this gun this was my dad's gun a remington side-by-side box box lock yeah 94 damascus barrels gun and for dell to say hey you know uh i mean i've got a a great relationship i owe a lot to my dad he's one of my best friends so for dell to hand that gun over and say hey yeah this was my dad's gun i want to do something with this gun you know i'm gonna i'm gonna restock it yeah i thought that was really for me was really kind of a poignant moment i guess so yeah 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 in our culture you know some of these things mean mean so much to people they really do and and again i i've had you know just personally i've had so many different guns and and i've had really high quality best name you know, best maker guns that I've pieced back together, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, like that 90, that Remington 94, or, or again, I've got an, a, an old Auto 5, you know, Browning. And that was the first nice gun my parents ever bought me. I remember sitting, you know, standing outside the front door and, you know, my dad handing me that thing and me pulling the sleeve off it. You know, he got it at Frontiersman. In, oh, yeah, Minneapolis. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. And, uh, you know, I felt like, again, I, I felt like I was, I was 16. I felt like I was holding a Scalibur. And, you know, I, I take that mm-hmm. gun out and I hunt with it every year. And, you know, it's not a best quality, you know, $50,000 shotgun. But every time I pick that up, I, 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 I feel some of that experience, yeah. you know, yeah. of, of, of receiving that. And, and, yeah, so. Yeah, that is just, that's some of the things that guns the whole world of guns, the memories and all that stuff is attached. My favorite thing that I saw gonna go on a different lines than, than that, which was obviously cool, but the you've got a match set of like really nice English guns and yeah, they're you're, and yeah, you're restocking mm-hmm. them yep. and you've got you have the actions rough fitted in. That was mm-hmm. cool. Roughly inlet grab, it, so it's I don't know like if you some pictures I didn't that, take but, a picture of that. Maybe that's... maybe Dale will. I you know, you never know. You don't want to take a picture of somebody's guns if they don't want oh, it man. posted cool, or whatever. Though. But it's just a solid brick of beautiful walnut and you've got the actions fitted on there, so it's like it it's kind of it looks air like a quotes, sculpture. It's air quotes like ugly right now, but just Half imagining finished, yeah. imagining what it's going to look like and that to see where it starts, it's yeah. Yeah, and that that visual, like like I told you, that visual is kind of rare because that's typical, you know, due to the fact that those initial stocks were crossover stocks, and I didn't have, right, you know, kind of an accurate. It that's not typically how it's done. You know, typically that would have all been blocked out. Rough, the profiles would have been roughly blocked out, and then then the actions would have been, you know, inlet, and all the hardware would have been inlet, and then you do the final shaping on the stock. But in that case, I had to. I had to have the actions inletted into the stock so I could then put the barrels on and use that device and figure out where 
the profile is, you know, it's, sure. I don't know if that will make sense to anybody, but it's yeah. kind of a, a reverse engineering of that process, but it does have a cool look when you've got, you know, yeah. two Holland and Holland, you know, detachable lock guns sitting there and there's just a large chunk of mass, you yep. know, unshaped mass of wood attached to them. Yeah. So, yeah, that's pretty cool stuff. Well, thanks again, Dell. I appreciate it. This won't be the last time you're on the project up podcast. Thanks everybody. Have a good night. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to the Project Upland podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. The podcast is also brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dogs or Collars, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, Gumleaf USA, Gordian Sons Outfitters, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast post. You could be next week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.